before I read that, uh, I wanted to read for you some of the resolutions of Jonathan Edwards. He made these when he was about 18 or 19 years old, and he was a young pastor at the time, not, not famous yet, uh, or highly esteemed, and he wasn't writing these to, uh, you know, for posterity. He was writing them for himself. And he had no thought at that point that, you know, one day I'm going to be regarded as the greatest theologian that America ever produced and um, one of the brightest thinkers uh, ever. And, uh, you know, people will be publishing my, my works long after I'm dead and um, there'll be Jonathan Edwards societies and all, <laughs> all kinds of things like that. He had no thought of that, I'm sure. So here's this young man, young pastor, and uh, here are some of his resolutions. Resolved never to do any manner of thing, whether in soul or body, less or more, but what tends to the glory of God, nor be nor suffer it if I can avoid it. Resolved never to lose one moment of time, but improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can. Resolved to live with all my might while I do live. Resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can with all the power, might, vigor, and vehemence, yea, violence I am capable of or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. Meaning rewards in heaven, and how can I live this life with such a you know, holy violence in order to obtain the greatest possible reward in heaven. Resolved to be endeavoring to find out fit objects of charity and liberality. Resolved to inquire every night before I go to bed whether I have acted in the best way I possibly could with respect to eating and drinking. Resolved to ask myself at the end of every day, week, month, and year, wherein I possibly in any respect could have done better. I frequently hear persons in old age say how they would live if they were to live their lives over again, resolve that I will live just so as I can think I shall wish I had done, supposing I live to old age. Resolve never to suffer the least motions of anger to irrational beings. Not going to kick the dog, in other words. <laughs> yes, cats too. Resolve never to say anything at all against anybody, but when it is perfectly agreeable to the highest degree of Christian honor and of love to mankind, agreeable to the lowest humility and sense of my own faults and failings, and agreeable to the golden rule, often when I have said anything against anyone, to bring it to and try it strictly by the test of this resolution." Resolved always to do what I can towards making, maintaining, establishing, establishing, and preserving peace when it can be without overbalancing detriment in other respects. Resolved 
in narrations, never to speak anything but the pure and simple verity, meaning no exaggerations in my stories. Resolved when I feel pain to think of the pains of martyrdom and of hell. Resolved after afflictions to inquire what I am the better for them, what good I have got by them, and what I might have got by them. Resolved to act in all respects, both speaking and doing, as if nobody had been so vile as I, and as if I had committed the same sins or had the same infirmities or failings as others, and that I will let the knowledge of their failings promote nothing but shame in myself and prove only an occasion of my confessing my own sins and misery to God. Resolved never to do anything which... If I should see in another, I should count a just occasion to despise him for, or to think any way the more meanly of him. Resolved never to do anything that I so much question the lawfulness of, as that I intend at the same time to consider and examine afterwards whether it be lawful or no. Resolved to examine carefully and constantly what that one thing in me is, which causes me in the least doubt of the love of God, least to doubt the love of God and to direct all my forces against it. You seemingly be meaning, you know, sin, what sin that causes me to doubt that God loves me and then direct all my forces against that so that I quit doing that thing that hinders the assurance. Resolve never to count that a prayer nor to let that pass as a prayer nor that as a petition of a prayer which is to be made that I cannot hope that God will answer it, nor that as a confession which I cannot hope God will accept. Resolved to strive to my utmost every week to be brought higher in religion and to a higher exercise of grace than I was the week before. And the last one that I have, resolved never henceforward till I die to act as if I were any way my own but entirely and altogether God's. That is a man serious about his faith. Edwards was obviously not a carnal Christian. He was not a mere hearer of the word. He was interested in doing it. Sanctification wasn't just a topic in one of his Puritan paperbacks on his bookshelf. It was the raison d'etre of his life, the reason for his existence. He knew, of course, being a man of the word, he knew of the danger of making rash vows, but it's obvious he didn't think of these as vows. They were simply actions that he deemed to be worthy of serious effort and commitment. And they would be no different than, say, when we resolve to go on a vacation, which is a much, of course, lighter matter. But when we resolve to do that, we're not making a vow to go on a vacation. We're simply making a commitment to do so. And then we make a concerted effort to succeed in the plan. We mark off a date. We jealously guard the date. We make sure not to plan anything else for that week. We turn down requests for various things that would happen that week. We set money aside. We make hotel reservations, perhaps, maybe plane reservations if need be. 
if there's anything requiring tickets or whatever, we, we buy those in advance. We get everything around the house that needs to be done in advance. We stop the mail. We arrange someone to do chores, perhaps, whatever we need to do, and then we go. Well, that's what Edwards was doing with respect to the business of sanctification. He wasn't just rehearsing what he would like to do or what he would like to be. He was forming a plan for sanctification, how he would fight sin and how he would grow in likeness. I've not been one to make New Year's resolutions. Um, the way those things are usually done, they're built to fail. But when you think about making a resolution, never mind New Year's, isn't Christ worthy of the kind of resolutions we see Edwards here making? Doesn't the majesty of our Redeemer argue for a strong commitment and a resolve and a plan to live for him to the fullest? Surely none of us would argue for a half-heartedness in the Christian life. None of us would argue for lukewarmness and seek to justify that. Well, in our text, Philippians 3, 12-14, we see Paul speaking in the language of resolution or the language of resolve. And we see a man here resolved to grow and mature in the faith. He says, not that I have already obtained it, or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I also was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So here is not a picture of a self-satisfied apostle who is content to review his accomplishments in the past and rest in what he's done or what God has accomplished in him in the past. And we're talking about Paul here who had a lot to his resume, so to speak, he had planted a lot of churches. He had seen a lot of converts come to the faith through his preaching. He had been used by God to perform signs and wonders. And he could have said to himself, I've done quite a lot. I think I'll just relax, take my ease, drink, eat, be merry. And he didn't do that, nor did he say any such thing with regard to his maturity in the faith. He didn't say, you know, I think I'm righteous enough. I'm more mature than anyone I know. <laughs> Indeed, he was probably far ahead of just about everybody on planet Earth at the time. It's hard to think of somebody who, who would have been ahead of him. I have no doubt that he is was at this time that he said this far ahead of where we are but he was not smug about that he was not smug about his progress he didn't think he had arrived yet he says in verse 12 not that i have already obtained it or become perfect and referring back to verses 10 and 11 he's speaking about being conformed to christ's death and attaining to the resurrection of the dead which that's coming but that that represents ultimate perfection the resurrection of the dead 
Not only am I free from sin, which everybody in heaven is, but when the body is then free from corruption and I have a perfect glorified body that will never decay again, that represents essentially the, the apex of perfection. And Paul is saying, I have not attained that. I'm not already attained that. I'm not there yet. I am not perfect. And I'm, I'm still a work in progress. And he repeats that point. In verse 13, he says, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. And I'm sure we can resonate with Paul on that point and say, Amen. We're not there yet either, are we? We've got lots of room to grow, lots of room to improve. Have we arrived at a state of perfection in being grateful to God for both his blessings and the sufferings that he appoints for us? Have we arrived at a state of perfect patience with our fellow sinners or even with God waiting on him for things that we're waiting on him for? Have we gained perfect mastery over our tongues? Have we conquered selfishness? Have we conquered greed and covetousness? Are we the best husbands we can be, the best wives we can be, the best parents we can be? Do we perfectly honor our father and our mother? Do we make the best use of our time day by day? Is our prayer life as good as it gets? Are we as committed to being peacemakers as we could be? Are we as evangelistic as we could be? When I was reading Edwards' resolutions, were you thinking to yourself, yeah, been there, done that? Yeah, me neither. In fact, I would say that if you are content where you are, if you're satisfied that you've come far enough, I don't think you're a Christian. For no Christian would ever assess himself as having arrived at a state of sufficient spiritual progress. On the contrary, a Christian mourns that he has done no more for Christ than he has, and he mourns that he's progressed no farther than he has in holiness. But Paul wasn't moping about the fact that he hadn't obtained perfection. You don't see that. His response to the unfinished business of sanctification was resolution, resolve. He was resolved to press on toward the goal. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that which, for which I was also laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That word, press on, translated in the NAS as press on, is dioko, and it has an interesting semantic range. This is an interesting word. It can mean to make, to run, or flee, to put to flight, to drive away, to run swiftly in order to catch a person or thing, in any way whatsoever to harass, 
to trouble, to molest one, to persecute. Without the idea of hostility, to run after someone. Metaphorically, to seek eagerly, earnestly, or endeavor to inquire, to acquire. So that gives you the idea when you look at those various possibilities and how the word is used in the New Testament. I'm pretty sure it's, what, it's the word when you have in the uh, Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, blessed are those who persecute you for righteousness, blessed are those who dioko you. <laughs> it's the same word he uses here. That's what he chooses to uses that word. He chooses to use that to describe efforts in sanctification. Well, it's not a strolling after something, a sauntering around. It is a running swiftly, a seeking eagerly in order to catch. If there's a negative sense to it, which there isn't here, but if there is, it's the word for persecute. So there's an intensity to it. And that word lay hold of in verses 12 to 13 is similar. It means to take eagerly, to seize. Verse 13, we see the words reach forward to what lies ahead. Reaching forward. It means to stretch oneself forward like an athlete running a race, stretching forward as he gets near the finish line. And in a very similar passage, Paul uses that race metaphor to describe the Christian life. 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Oh, the Christian life is a race. It's best symbolized by the picture of a runner competing in a marathon, exerting himself, reaching forward to the finish line. It is not the leisurely picture of a man lying on an air mattress floating down a river or a man riding an escalator or an elevator. It's not even a man in a sports car with the pedal to the metal, you know, going 100 miles an hour down the highway. It's a race, but it's not a car race. It's a marathon race, a race you run, and it's a marathon, not a sprint. It requires effort. Sweat, perseverance. That's the metaphor. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, we, we see it again. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. 
There would have been many times, I would think, for the Apostle Paul, when it would have been very tempting to abandon the race that he was running. Five times he was whipped with 39 lashes by the Jews. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned. Any, any of those times, after any of those beatings, it might have been tempting to get up and go, you know, I think I've had enough. I think I've had enough of the victorious Christian life. I think I've had enough of your best life now. It's hard enough to run a marathon, but when you have to run a marathon through a gauntlet of thugs with billy clubs, it gets old. He was shipwrecked three times, floating around the ocean, hanging onto a plank of wood. He was often without food and frequently experienced cold and exposure. He just wasn't warm enough. He didn't have warm enough clothes. He didn't have blankets. He, he didn't have a way to really get warm. The situations where he had no place to stay, obviously, like Christ. Christ said, the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, and the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And Paul, following in the footsteps of Christ, experienced the same thing. There were constant attacks and criticisms from false teachers and false brethren. He's always having to put out fires in churches. Isn't there an easier road to eternal life besides this one? Besides this narrow road? No, there isn't. There's only one road, and it's uphill, and it's difficult. There's no shortcuts. It's a marathon. And it's long and it's grueling. So Paul is reaching forward. And what is he reaching forward to lay hold on? Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus, which really kind of begs the question, he hasn't answered it yet. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the, here we go, the goal or the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The prize of the upward call of God, the call from above on high. It is a call to inherit eternal life. And that's what we're after. That's what Paul was after. That's the end, the prize at the end of our race. And when you consider what a prize that is, it makes the race worth running. In fact, it makes the difficulties of the race seem light. Think of Paul's remarkable comments in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day for momentary light affliction <laughs> is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Light momentary affliction. Three times whipped with the 39 lashes. 
beaten with rods, stoned, shipwrecked, hunger, thirst, mocking, insults, undermining, and so on. Oh, the race may be long. It's a marathon, not a sprint, but compared to eternity, it's really very short. Our lives are over quickly. Another year just went by. It's just gone. And it won't be very long before, God willing, I'll be standing here again and we'll be talking about the end of 2024. Another year, gone. And we're not getting any younger, are we? But after all that, eternal life. Eternal life. In Matthew 19, 29, Jesus said, Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. Prize is called by various other names in the New Testament. Jesus calls it treasure in heaven in Matthew 6, 19 through 20. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. In Matthew 25, 34, he calls it the kingdom. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. In Colossians 1, 5, Paul calls it the hope laid up for you in heaven. In 1 Timothy 6, 17-19, Paul calls it by two names. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to be good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. That's how he describes it the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. 2 Timothy 4, 6-8, through 8, he calls it the crown of righteousness. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. There is a man finishing the race. He's reaching forward. He's about to the finish line, and there is a crown of righteousness, and he can see it. James calls it the crown of life in James 1.12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And Peter calls it the crown of glory in 1 Peter 5, 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And then he calls it an inheritance in the same book, chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance 
which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So that's what we're reaching forward. That's what Paul was reaching out to. That's what he was pressing on to obtain. And that's, that picture there is a very different picture of the Christian life than what is generally portrayed by popular Christian culture. Paul's conception is a lot different than the modern conception. The idea that many seem to have today of the Christian life is like pur purchasing a ticket to a game or a concert. And the only effort involved, if it could be called effort, is purchasing the ticket. The price is small, really doesn't cost anything. And you can buy it at any time, early or late. But the ticket is not a right to participate in a marathon race. No, it's a right to show up to a grand party someday in a place called heaven. That's the popular conception. Once you've got your ticket, not really much else to do, is there, other than wait for the party. There's no race to run with endurance. There's nothing to press on and lay hold of. Nothing to reach forward to. The one who is running a marathon race to win is living in a very different way than one who's just waiting for a party in the distant future. Those people don't look the same. They don't live the same way. Really, what we have there is two very different versions of Christianity. The one is easy believism, common in our day, brought to us by Arminianism. That's what Luther accused Erasmus of in the bondage of the will. He made a very surprising remark. He said, Pelagius is better than you, essentially. I'm paraphrasing. At least Pelagius gave us all kinds of works to do noble and full and hard and glorious to obtain eternal life, you've reduced it down to one simple thing called faith, which you call faith, which is really nothing, just a free will decision. That's what Arminianism has given us. That's still the dominant idea that prevails today. Salvation is nothing but a mere decision. And that decision, once it's made, is just like punching your ticket to a party. There's little to do but wait for the party. There's no thought of running a race so as to win, like Paul describes it. Now, I want to be clear. When I talk about cheap grace and easy, believ easy believism and that doing nothing on the one side other than getting your ticket and waiting for the party, and then we've got strenuous marathon running here on the other side that Paul talks about. We're not talking about salvation by works or gaining eternal life by strenuous effort as opposed to grace. No, what we're talking about here is, is that God saves us by grace on the basis of Christ alone and not on the basis of any works or merit on our part. And there's no marathon running at all anyway before he does that. But once he does so, 
He continues to give us the grace we need for sanctification. And sanctification is an uphill marathon race that requires perseverance. But God gives the grace that his elect need to persevere. And so what I'm saying is that if one is living a slothful life, waiting around for a big event to which he thinks he's entitled by virtue of some decisional regeneration ticket that he's purchased, that person is not likely saved at all. But I find that that's not just Arminians who act that way anymore. Many Calvinists do as well. The only difference between them and the easy believism Ar Arminians is their notion of how they got their ticket punched. But other than that, there's very little difference. Did they do it or did God do it? But other than that, they live in the same slothful way, not pressing on, not reaching forward, not running the race with endurance, but merely hanging out until the big day. For many Calvinists, sanctification is not something they're putting any serious effort toward. It's simply a topic in their systematic theology. It's simply a section on their Puritan paperback collection of their bookshelf. Oh, that's a good book. Did you read Thomas Watson on such and such? Yeah, that's a good book. That never goes further than that. Very unfortunately common in Reformed circles. And then sanctification is just something that will just surely happen because we're going to a sound church. We're going to a reformed church, so sanctification will just happen. Paul, who labored so much and so hard, summed up his life this way. 1 Corinthians 15.10 But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Well, that shows us how God's grace and then labor work together. Paul labored more than all of them, yet not I, the grace of God in me. It was the grace of God propelling him onward to these things. So as we think about... 2024 approaching the approach of a new year and as we think back on Edwards stirring resolutions and as we think about the Christian race that we are to run with endurance let's not be afraid to seriously dedicate ourselves to the business of sanctification in the coming year let's not shrink back from commitment Oh, I, I wouldn't want to venture too far there. You can't. Oh, I wouldn't want to be too serious about the faith. You can't be. I wouldn't want to resolve to do something and then possibly fail. You're already failing miserably. If you have that attitude, why not fail forward instead of backward? But we have to be specific. We have to be specific in our resolves. We can't just leave it wide open and vague with some sort of uh, you know, nebulous sanctification. A, a general good intention to be sanctified, whatever that means. 
I really want to think about what it means. Then I might have to do something different. Edwards' resolutions, most of them were not vague and nondescript. They were specific. Resolved to be endeavoring to find outfit objects of charity and liberality. Well, that's, that's a resolve to be generous, but it's more than that. He resolved to find out fit objects of charity. He didn't just say, I resolved to be more generous this year. And then how did, does he ever know if he was or not? How does he assess it? No, he needs to find out fit objects of charity. He's going to go looking for them. It's very different than some general, vague, yeah, I'm a, I want to be more generous in 2024. Resolve to inquire every night before I go to bed whether I've acted in the best way I possibly could with respect to eating and drinking. That's measurable. <laughs> so he's said, okay, I'm going to do that each night. I'm going to review the day, breakfast, lunch, and supper, and think about what I ate and how I behaved myself with respect to that. Was I temperate or was I glutton? That's a measurable action point. You can measure that. You can check yourself by it. Resolve to ask myself at the end of every day, week, month, and year wherein I could have possibly in any respect have done better. Probably best just to leave it at daily, I would think. And if you're doing it daily, you're doing it every week and you're doing it every month anyway. But it's that sense of before I go to bed at night, I'm going to just kind of review the day. And I'm going to think about how I conducted myself with respect to my words and my actions and what I did, what I left undone, and just evaluate. Could I have done that better? Okay, well, how? Okay, what are you going to do about it? If we're serious about growing, we need a plan. Keeping up the status quo isn't going to accomplish anything, right? If we feel that we're fine spiritually, then, of course, by all means, continue the status quo. But if you sense there is something amiss, something that should be done about failure, then there's going to have to be changes made. And you know the, the old saying, nobody likes change. Everybody hates change. But there's going to have to be change for there to be any improvement. We have to embrace change. The status quo is not working. Very few things will ever be successful without some plan to carry it out. If you're going to eat breakfast in the morning, you have some basic plan to facilitate that objective. The food doesn't just jump in your mouth. There's something you're going to have to buy and have on hand, and you're going to have to fix it, even if it's just getting a box of cereal and pouring it into a bowl. In the same way, sanctification is not just going to happen because you're breathing or because you have a Bible reading program, though that's good, or because you're attending a sound church, though that's good. Those are better than the alternative for sure, but they're not enough. Things that we are doing that hinder our spiritual growth have to be changed. And I don't want to put words in your mouth here or make up resolutions for you, but this is just going along with kind of what Edwards was doing here, some things that are suggestions to keep in mind 
these are all connected to biblical duties anyway. So in some sense, these are just things we ought to be doing. It's just a matter of, well, how do you go about a plan to, to grow? And, and when I say this, I, I'm not excluding the Holy Spirit. I'm not excluding grace. I'm not suggesting that if you just have a plan and steps to follow, that it'll automatically be. Th these things all go together with grace. But it is grace that helps you carry them out. And Paul was pressing on. It wasn't pressing on in my own effort, never mind the Holy Spirit. But it also wasn't the Holy Spirit, never mind pressing on. It's both. So with respect to Bible reading, can, can we not commit, even on our busiest days, to reading at least one chapter thoughtfully each day? And probably more other days. And when I say thoughtfully, I don't mean just read it quickly to get it done. Thoughtfully. As we're reading, there ought to be at least one prayer request that could come off of that page out of that chapter where something you're reading could be converted and turned into a prayer request. That's how George Mueller did his prayer life. He just simply read the Bible, and then he took prayer requests out of what he was reading. So let's say you're reading a parable of Jesus, and it, you know one of the things is, where is your faith or something like that? Then, Well, there's your, there's your prayer request. Lord, I so often don't believe. I am so slow of heart to believe what you have said and you rebuke the disciples for their little faith i'm like them i am a man of little faith lord help me believe help me to believe your promises i don't believe them not because you're not trustworthy because you're a liar it's me it's i'm the problem there's a prayer request you don't have to pray long periods of time to say that you just it doesn't have to be long if we're alone for any length of time, maybe it's in the car, driving to work, driving somewhere, can we not commit to improve that time by praying in that car? Praying for each other as a church family. Going through the names of the people in the church. Praying for each one of them, that one after another. If you're a parent and you have one particular child perhaps that you're concerned about, you feel needs some personal attention from you, but somehow they never get it. It's elusive. It's on your mind. You think about it. You have thoughts about, I need to spend more time with him or her, and, but it just never gets done. It won't ever get done unless there's a change, unless there's a deliberate thought of, okay, I've got to schedule this and I've got to put it on. There's got to be a day and there's got to be an hour, a time of the day where I do this. And so I quit just talking about it or thinking about it, and I actually do something about it. But the status quo will not create that time. You have to break in on the status quo and be deliberate and intentional. With respect to our speech, the way we talk to our family and others, if it needs improvement, then we need to speak with more grace. Well, that's not going to happen by just a passing conviction about it. We will need to be deliberate. And at the end of the day, if we're doing what Edwards did there and reviewing the day, is there anything I could have done better? Reviewing our speech. So there needs to be a deliberation, needs to be serious, there needs to be a plan. 
or these things just generally don't happen. Remember that the verb translated press on means to run swiftly in order to catch a person or thing. To eagerly seek after, earnestly endeavor to acquire. And the question that we would all have to ask ourselves, is that describe my sanctification life? Does that describe my approach to sanctification? Or am I more like the guy riding an escalator, or even worse, just sitting in a recliner. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this passage, and I thank you for the Apostle Paul and how you chose him and used him and used him to do so many things, and I thank you for his words that it, that it was the grace of God at work in him uh, so that we cannot be discouraged by his great example but recognize that we need that same grace and as the grace works in us we accomplish far more than we uh, would ever probably imagine lord we want to be serious about uh, sanctification we want to be serious about spiritual growth we don't want to fall prey to um, ideas that it just happens by osmosis or that it just happens by having a checklist of, I've read my Bible passage today, therefore I must be sanctified. Help us to make plans that need to be made. Help us to resolve and not be afraid to be resolved. Um, help us uh, to really just be serious about pressing on. Now we... We would all agree, Lord, that the church today in general is in trouble and that there's something greatly lacking, but all we can you know, do is look in the mirror and, and we can't do much about that out there, but uh, we can address our own selves, our own lives, our own personal lives. And we pray that you would help us to do so and uh, help us to reach forward to what lies ahead. Help us to press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.